Welcome to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability. I am Stephanie Shockley. And I'm Robin King. And we are your hosts. Today, we are in conversation with Teresa Kim Hesanowski. Born in South Korea and raised in Iowa, Teresa had a brief stint as an ESL teacher in Japan, then landed in Houston teaching early elementary and earning a Master's of Education from the University of Houston. As a Vanderbilt Divinity School and Disciples Divinity House Seminarian in Nashville, one of her most unexpected moments was reading Schleiermacher at 5 a.m. while pumping milk for her four-week-old infant. Don't ask her what she remembers about Schleiermacher now. For the past three years, Reverend Teresa has accompanied patients, families, and healthcare colleagues through hospice chaplaincy. Mother God is her debut picture book, published by Beaming Books. Teresa is also excited to be a contributing writer for the upcoming Shine Story Bible through Menno Media and Brethren Press. She and her spouse have two adorable and exhausting young children. Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We are really excited to have you here. And we have a couple different things I'd like to talk with you about, but I want to start with your book because you have written this really gorgeous children's book. It is called Mother God, and I am in love with it for several reasons. Um, One, uh, the whole like, what language do we use to talk about God was maybe not in its heyday, but still very live when I went to seminary. And I remember even then being annoyed that we're, we're like, the options are male pronouns or female pronouns. I'm like, scripture is a lot richer than that. And you have pages that discuss so many of those things really beautifully. Um, but the other reason I love your God is you have woven really beautiful disability images into the people that are pictured and therefore into your story. So thank you for doing all of that work. I think the question I'd like to start with is what brought you to write this, this book, this book that honors all of these scriptural portrayals of God and a a fairly broad spectrum of human diversity. That's a great question. Um, The straightforward answer is that I was contacted by Naomi Kruger, who's the acquisitions editor at Beaming Books. She had seen a couple images of artwork I had done in the fall of 2020. I did paper cut art for Shipra and Pua, the midwives in Exodus story. The daughters of Salafahad, whose story is told in several books of the Torah. And she contacted me and said, have you ever considered writing a children's book? And I almost fell out of my chair and I thought, is this a joke? Because I don't think it's very nice (laughs) if it is. Um, But we were messaging on Twitter and then we set up a phone call. And at first I had proposed to her that I would write a, a book on lesser known women in scripture, right? He said, well, we published a similar book like this recently, and publishers don't like to have competing interest in titles. He said, but have you considered writing a book about maternal images of God? And I'm like, oh, yes, I can totally do this. Give me, give me a little while and I'll do this, which in retrospect, I should not have promised because you don't know how long it's going to take for you to write a manuscript at all. It could be a couple of years, right? But I went to my home church here where I am at, at Houston Mennonite Church, and they were letting me use the building because it was still full lockdown with COVID, right? And I couldn't get any work done at home. So I started writing it, and I had a pretty decent draft. I edited it again the next day, and I emailed it to her that week. She sent it to her editorial team, and I had a book deal in three weeks, which is like unheard of that it would happen quickly. I was going to say, there are so many parts of this that um, I like observe authors online because I like reading their work. Almost nobody gets approached for a book deal, much less a- No, unless you're like 
really, really famous celebrity, okay? Like, that's it's really unheard of because children's books are, are more expensive to make. You have full color printing cost, hardback cover cost. And so most, you know, most people don't ever even earn out for their advances because it's so expensive to make children's books. And then that you were able to write this so quickly. Like, as people of faith, I think it's almost essential to look at that and say, like, clearly the Holy Spirit was at work Mm -hmm. in in this. It was very, very rapid. And the rhyming scheme and wording came to me so quickly. Um, I don't really like to say things are inspired, but I don't think it's out of the realm of reasonability to say that there was definitely some inspiration going on there, too. Yeah. So as I said, your text really pays attention to God as a mother and as a maternal figure, and then to the breadth of the ways scripture talks about God. And then woven into the artwork are all of these pictures and images that, I don't want to say create space, but sort of acknowledge the diversity of disability as part of creation. Just a little bit wordier, but I think slightly more accurate. And I know from conversations we've had that you worked to make sure that happened. Right. So it's always interesting when you look at the children's book publishing world, because I had taken a really great class when I was at the University of Houston for my Master of Education. And a professor who is prolifically published, um, she's in her late 80s, I think now, um, she was telling us that most major publishing houses have in-house illustrators. So it's not like you get to say, oh, I get to pick so-and-so and and -and so-and-so to do my illustrations. But every publishing house is different, and Beaming Books is pretty small, even though they're under the larger 1517 Media um, name. So uh, I had a lot of say in art direction that I think most, especially first-time authors, do not have. And Naomi was really great about being very receptive to the art direction cues because it was such a specifically theological book. So she would say how do you want us to illustrate Sophia wisdom? Because that's such an abstract concept, right? Um, And it really is above the four to eight range that the book is geared toward. But I think we came up with something great. So Sophia wisdom is depicted as a conductor instead of conducting instruments or singers. um, She's conducting sort of like thought bubbles of different aspects of Sophia wisdom. Um, And that's in a part of, I think, the appeal to older readers mm-hmm. and adults, too, because you really get a lot of richness out of that. I do think there's space in that. Um, I remember seeing some, I forget who it was. It was a long time ago. But a children's book creator pointing out that some of what children like is all of the details. Mm-hmm. So I think younger readers may not get, like, the broader theological scope, but there's a way to invite them into that and say like, well, when you do things like this, this is how God is present in that. Right. And I mean, I have a five-year-old and she's constantly interrogating media consumption, which I love. It does get kind of annoying sometimes, (laughs) but she's the type of person and reader who would say, why is there a turtle with an island on its back, mommy? And what does that mean? And you're like, oh, well, that's, you know, a reference to Turtle Island, which is a long-held indigenous <laughs> legend. Um, I was very, very firm about there being disability representation woven throughout the book. And that was another area where Naomi said, I've never done anything like this as an editor, and so I'm going to need some cues. Um, and for one of the scenes where God is the elderly woman, um, my friend Shannon Dingle, she actually sort of crowdsourced some options on Twitter and asking, what would you want this scene to look like for children who are, you know, sensory, um, sensory, 
challenges or on the spectrum or in like a high functioning special needs class. And a lot of the things that we chose, people mentioned on Twitter. So the fidget spinner or the one kid sitting further away from the rest of them. You have the girl having to be at the rocker and having that motion with the elderly woman. Um, the There's a, a girl sitting on a balance ball. Um, and so those are really subtle things that you might not notice if you weren't, you know, if you're not someone who works with people with those kinds of disabilities. But if you do, you recognize it immediately. Well, and I know um, we have young youngish children and, and very young children at my church. And when I invite them up to sit with me for like the children's message, I'll occasionally get a like, well, can I stand? Mm-hmm. And it's always an interesting moment because the parents are hoping, and I am not a parent, but I, I understand like you don't want your kid to be the problem kid. And I'm like, if you can stand and listen, then yeah. Yeah. But that scene you describe is part of what I really love about how you did this. Um, so often I see people reaching for some image to mean, and we mean disabled people too. And it's, it's a wheelchair. It's always a wheelchair. <laughs> Always the kid in the wheelchair. Sometimes they put a kid in a hijab. Sometimes they make the kid redheaded. Yeah. Glasses, but it's always the wheelchair. It's basically always a, a wheelchair. rope. Right. Yeah. And I mean, a part of me understands that for so long, like the symbol for all disability is someone in a wheelchair, but that doesn't cover most disabled people. Right. Most people who are disabled that I know do not use wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's just, it's so lazy. And then even a lot of wheelchair users are not exclusive wheelchair users. But the other thing that I love about this, where it is just woven into the scene, is that is how disability actually works in our lives. It is woven mm-hmm. into some part of everybody's life, either through personal experience or through the people around you. So for the people who know that and are sort of clued into that, I think there's a lot of moments to be like, oh, this image of God actually has space for me too. Mm-hmm. And hopefully for a lot of conversations to happen where it's like, oh, you know, I know this person who uses a fidget spinner, who mm-hmm. has a service dog, and hopefully to invite other people into the realization of how implicit this is in this book yeah one of the my favorite stories of feedback that i received from my launch team from a friend of mine who's a minister and her daughter had just turned eight when the book arrived the advanced copy and my friend was going to read it to her she said no i'm going to read it to you mom so she read it to her mom who's like trying not to cry right reading it And then they get to the page with the woman who is the seamstress and has the diabetes pump on her arm. And her daughter said, you know, what is that? She said, oh, I think it's for people who, I don't know what she said, but she tried to explain what a diabetes pump is. And her daughter had this very strong reaction said, I don't like that because if you're gonna include something like that, you need to explain it. And then they had this really great conversation about what does it mean when you see someone who's different from you? Do they owe you an explanation? And I I love that story because that's the kind of conversations I hope that parents and teachers and ministers are having with children when they read this and saying, is it okay if you go up to someone who has like an obvious physical disability and say, what's wrong with you, right? Because like, yeah. you know, as a parent, I'd be like, oh my God, I'd be horrified. But it you can model those conversations with literature in ways so that you're not terribly horrified, mortified. I mean, my children are probably going to say stuff like that too, but just as parents often think it's sort of their duty to embarrass their teenagers out of, you know, not an interest to humiliate them, but to keep them safe and teach them things. I think uh, sort of that under sort of five ish crowd (laughs) has the opposite duty in the exploration of their world, they are going to humiliate their parents (laughs) in some way, shape, or form. Right. And a lot of it is natural curiosity. They don't understand social cues and mores. And they'll learn that. 
And um, this is how you learn that by doing something yes. and being like, oh, next time we can talk about how you actually know not to do that. <laughs> and if they don't have literature and specifically picture books, which is so much of a child's first media that represents the diversity of the world, how are they supposed to engage in real conversations about that when they get to the real world? Yep. Um, and I know there are some parents who are totally okay being like, it's okay, honey, you can go ask him what's wrong or what happened to him. He doesn't mind. I'm like, no, that is horrible. And people are not your learning tool when they're especially complete strangers, right? That's so rude. And I know we've talked with people uh, who are on the other half of that conversation, and they're quite clear that while there are days when they have the time and the patience mm -hmm. to engage with a child and do that work that is not happening anywhere else in this child's life, there are other days when they don't. Mm -hmm. And you don't know, looking at them, which day it is. Right. And you don't get to determine which day that is. Or... If you just want to be left alone, go away. <laughs> right. Right. But the, the, on the flip side of that, there's also, if there's no representation anywhere, then it becomes a taboo thing that they're going to exclaim about in public. Oh, yeah. Whereas if it's just discussed in, because there's a book or, you know, because the parents are comfortable addressing one thing or another, then it's just, then that's, it's just a thing that gets addressed in conversation. So they're not going to run up to a random stranger and demand to know things. Yeah. I have a very vivid memory of being in elementary school and going out to the local airport where my dad was a small craft pilot. And there was a man there who had a voice box and I didn't understand what it meant. And I kept giggling because it sounded funny to me. And I wasn't trying to be cruel or rude. I just thought it was funny. And my older brother took me aside and like chastised me. And he said, you told me what a voice box was, but I didn't know. Um, and if you don't know, there is a funny, like there's a sort of funny sound to a person speaking with the voice box. And I understand what he was trying to do, you know, and saying like, you're, but I wasn't old enough to understand that bigger concept. No, there was a better way he probably could have done it, but I know he was looking back. He was, I'm sure, mortified that his little sister was giggling at this man with a voice box. When I think about that. I had no exposure to anyone with a voice box before that. And actually maybe just two or three experiences since then. I want to turn away from the book in a second. Before we do that, I do want to say your website does have a scripture guide because, as I said, one of the things I love is you represent in the book a whole breadth of scriptural descriptions of God. So It's Chicago-style cited, so all the nerds will be very happy. Um, so if you are hearing this and you're like, I did not catch any of that and want to learn more, that resource is something you very thoughtfully created for people. What I'd like to talk about instead is you put a lot of time and thought into creating disability representation in a children's book that wasn't, where the object wasn't, and people are disabled, but it is a part of the world God has created. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with disability and why that was so crucial to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um... So I have, like most people, a lot of internalized ableism. And if you don't grow up with the realization that you have a disability, then you live in a very ableist-centered world. And I would say that's certainly true for me. Um, as, I, as an adult, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which has been by far the most debilitating disease I've had. Um, However, I was not comfortable at all saying that I was disabled until I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, because that's something purely physical, right? And if it's physical, then it's okay to say that this is a debilitating disease. It's not okay still to say that PTSD is a debilitating disease, especially in a lot of conservative Christian circles, because 
you just need to pray a little bit harder. It's all in your head. And my spouse is on social security disability and has been shortly since we were married. And his disability is not visible either. And so especially when in the time we've lived in Texas, there's always this awkward interchange when you're meeting people for the first time. They're like, so what do you do? And what does your husband do? And then they're at pause. Well, and nobody, very rarely does someone say, well, why isn't he working? Or, you know, nobody wants to actually say that, but that pause and the look you get is just like, ugh. I actually got to the point where I was like, if you want to ask me something, you can. <laughs> Instead of just awkwardly sitting here, okay? <laughs> and even sometimes, you know, you know, the longer we've been married, the more comfortable I was saying, you know, he doesn't, right now, he, I say he's a stay-at-home dad, and that's very hip, okay, to have a stay-at-home dad. Yep. Um, but it wasn't hip when he wasn't a father, and he was just not working. Because it's still not okay to be just like a house husband or stay, you know, stay at home like spouse. Unless you're a woman. I mean, I was gonna say that touches on both like cultural sexism and assumed roles, but also this belief we have, especially in uh, North America, that our job as people is to be productive to others mm-hmm. and that capitalism and productivity god is so strong right if you're not producing something then what are what kind of worth do you have to bring and i think too about why was it so important for me to have disability representation in the way that it was portrayed in the book and part of it was realizing most people with just like lots of people with disabilities are not visible right and so it is extra challenging to show that in a visually laden picture book but it's worth a challenge and i've seen this with the effort to get the book permission no the permission to get the book published in Braille, which is going to be at my own doing and own expense. So I know you worked really hard and you were only just able to announce that. It is extra work to put image descriptions. It is extra work to go get copyright permission. And guess what? That's okay because people with disabilities live with extra work every single day. (laughs) (laughs) You can put up with a little inconvenience and write an image description, okay? (laughs) It's interesting because there is increasing pressure on on Braille users, um, Braille readers to not to like, it's not a big deal. You can just listen to everything. It's audio. And the people who do use Braille are like, you know what? I need to be able to have like my own thing that I can, you know, there are people, there are people who are like very activist about it. That I, People that I know, they're very activist, yeah. very activist about it. And they're like, they want to be able to have their own thing that works for them. That's not just adapting everybody else's thing, you know? Um, But it's very hard. And it's very hard to get people to recognize that there may be people who are Braille readers who either, and you and I had this conversation back and forth on Twitter, either children who are Braille readers or adults with, that want to be able to read to their children, you know, and not just be like, well, I don't get to read to my kid. That's, you know, I have a sighted spouse. So therefore like they're, they, their people don't want to be like that. They want to be able to do the regular parenting things. Well, and reading to a kid is such a bonding time. Yeah. It was actually one of the gifts of the pandemic is one of the things I could do that was both delightful for me, but also genuinely helpful to my godchild's parents mm-hmm. is I could read a book to them online. Yes. And they could sort of set the kid up with like, the screen and I could have the book and show the pictures and read. And the, I mean, it's not like they couldn't leave the, leave me with the child and no other adult supervision, but they could go do the other adulting things that have to happen in a household without someone showing up and being like, will you play with me? Will you like that constant? Um, But, you know, I really enjoyed that because it's a chance to get to know 
a kid in a way that's not just what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there's something there to talk about. You talk about the pictures and all yeah. the little details and, you know, or like, why is they can think, wait, the camel is winking. Why is the camel winking or whatever? You know, yeah, there's whole conversations. Yeah. And, you know, someone with the background in literacy training, children build so much of their world through picture books. Mm-hmm. Right. So in the, in the literacy world, we call it text to text, text to self, and text to world. And you see okay. that over and over again. Um, Could you, for people who aren't in a literacy world, give like the 30-second description of those three categories? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we teach reading and literacy and reading development, we look at the book we're, or text we're reading and compare it to other texts, Right. How does this compare? How is this similar or different? What do you see happening in this text that's not happening in the other one? And then text to self. So what is it about this story or information that you're reading that relates to yourself and your own experiences? And then text to world. Wow, you know, we're reading about the Himalayas. Have you ever been to see the mountains? You know, a greater world um, perspective. And that's a general sort of literacy training model in teaching uh, English language arts. Okay. Thank you. So I'm like, I think I understand that, but I definitely understand it better with that explanation. Yeah. And I, it's fun because once you build a, a large enough library for your children, you say, hey, this reminds me of this book about mm-hmm. snakes or whatever it is. Um, and hey, remember when grandpa took you to the lake and you went fishing just like this book? And um, I wonder what it would be like to go in outer space. You know, maybe we can see a video of people in outer space. Um, And making all of those connections really enriches the reading experience, but also just your child's world experience. And so when we say that, books are really an exploration gateway to the world it's not just a nice saying it's it's very practical and for me growing up in a small town in Iowa books were my gateway to the world because I didn't go to big cities or travel around the world that's how I learned about the world well you're talking about those three categories and how a child might move through them and I'm hearing echoes of questions I will ask adults about Bible stories. Mm-hmm. Like when we hear, you know, the story of Jesus going up the mountain, do you see the echo to the story of Moses going up the mountain? Yep, absolutely. Um, and how building those skills, again, like this book is so beautifully biblical and building that through line for people and helping them gain the skills to connect that speak into my heart here speak into my heart <laughs> you know one thing i loved about this book i i so i um i gave this book to my my niece as one of her birthday presents when she turned five to my um my second to youngest niece actually and my brother and and sister-in-law um are definitely raising her in like a, you know in a, in going to church and in a spiritual environment etc um and combining it with like really progressive values that I'm very, very, very on board with. Um, one thing I like about it is that the book helps support both their, them raise, raising her in the Christian tradition and also raising her in their progressive values. It actually, so, so it supports the talking about things, the way that they want to, it gives them tools, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, to express what they're trying to do. The book basically covers yes. the world that they're trying to um, help her understand. Yeah. And honestly, you know, the Christian picture book market is humongous, but the good Christian picture book market is really tiny. And so I've been yeah. at stores or Target or whatever and looked at the popular Christian books and I'm like, this is mostly good until I get to this page. I'm like, nope, we're not ever buying this book. There's a um, lot of those. Mm-hmm. And I'll, a lot of parents feel like, oh, I just have to edit this. And you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to edit every single book yeah. for your child. You don't do that with non-religious books, do you? No. 
I know parents who do, but the danger is always if I am editing it, it is not accessible for me to hand someone else this book and let them have this experience with a child. Mm -hmm. Because I have to hand them like, here's the book. Here's the notes. Here's the notes. Um, I, I would like to go back to the internalized ableism that you talked about, um, because I think there's two, probably several, but two things about that that are really important to me. One is, you are absolutely right, a lot of people don't connect disability and mental health diagnoses as being inherently part of a thing. Mm-hmm. And that the other part of that is if you are uncomfortable with the concept of disability. Even if you're not like, you don't think of yourself as uncomfortable with disabled people, but you think of it as an other concept. It can be really hard to get to a place where you're like, oh, I'm disabled and that is not a problem. Right. Could you tell us a little bit more about your journey through that? Yeah. Honestly, I would say... A lot of my education and coming to terms with internalized ableism has come through social media, specifically on Twitter, because there are some really phenomenal disability activists that are active on Twitter, especially when COVID started to hit. Yeah. um, Saying Mm -hmm. this affects us disproportionately the way it affects you able people. Um, And I had horrible experience at the airport and outside of DC, that was a direct ADA violation. It was horrible. And I kept thinking, oh, this is what all these disability activists on Twitter have been warning me about, that they would rather drive 500 miles and ever go to the airport. Yep. Um, and once you experience that just one time, no, I would never wanna go back to the airport ever again. It was humiliating. I was so exhausted and the extra effort I had to put in to file an ADA complaint and then get this pat on the back. We'll add this to our, you know, our monthly report. Thanks so much. No, (laughs) it doesn't fix anything people. No, it definitely doesn't fix anything. And I kept thinking about what if I was had a different disability and there would have been permanent bodily or you know, mental damage to myself from what you all did, because that certainly happens all the time. Yep. Um, so I would say being willing to listen to the stories of disabled people and then connecting that to, um, of course, the, you know, the touchstone is uh, the disabled God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I know you've talked about on the podcast. And doesn't always stand the test of time for some ways, but in many ways, very much does. What really stood out to me initially when I read it was the way she talks about Jesus being disabled, right? And it really transformed the way I looked at Thomas, too. Hmm. Uh, Thomas is your spouse, I'm assuming. Oh, sorry. No, Thomas in the Bible. Um, <laughs> Thomas in the Bible. Okay. Yeah, sorry. That wasn't clear. It's like, your spouse wasn't named, so I don't, I don't know who, which, yes. Okay. You know, doubting Thomas in the Bible and who demands to see Jesus's sides and hands. He gets such a bad rap. Oh, this is such a pet peeve of mine. Oh. He does. And you know who else gets a bad rap? It drives me, you know, really annoyingly is Martha from Mary and Martha. Yeah. Yep. She gets such a bad rap. And then, no, it's, she is the one who a couple chapters later is the one who says, my Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. She's the one who says that statement, not Mary. Okay. So yep. y'all need to get your story straight about Mary and Martha. Okay. She is also, not big Jesus bad takes, Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm. yeah like, it's so much sexism. She in was expected to feed a bunch of friends of Jesus with dirty feet and hungry stomachs. Okay. That was yep. her role in that society. So no. We can do a separate podcast for that one. <laughs> well, but it transforms the way I looked at Thomas because instead of being this, you know, faithless, mm-hmm. weaker, spiritually weaker person, you're like, 
wow, maybe this was part of what enriched your understanding of divinity and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could, maybe Thomas could relate to the fact that Jesus had physical scars that he bore the rest of his earthly life. Um, so those shifts have been significant for me. And then having children realizing, I really want them to be exposed to media and experiences that are much more representat- representative of the diversity of the world they live in. And you've identified this, but that is part of what drives internalized ableism is mm-hmm. those disabled people who are all in wheelchairs somehow and all need ramps and there's special buttons for them. Not here are people who are part of our lives and our churches. Right. And I think some disabilities we have are, are temporary. Mm-hmm. So when I had postpartum depression with my first child, it wasn't something that lasted forever, thank God. Um, but I already had a history of depression and PTSD before, so it's, it was pretty acute when it happened for me. And the my editor was saying, for the spread where God is a nursing mother, how do you want us to portray postpartum depression? So we talked about this. I said, you could have a calendar with an appointment on there, or you could do... Maybe she's reading a book about postpartum depression, which is what we ultimately chose because it has a very classic feel for the illustrations. Um, And a number of mothers have shared with me how meaningful that is to them because it feels like an authentic representation of their first experience or their, their experience with motherhood because so much of motherhood in this culture is, oh, it's just so beautiful and you have this gorgeous child and everything's fine and dandy because your baby's healthy. So that's all that matters, right? And it is wonderful if you have a healthy baby. It's also okay if you don't have a healthy baby, okay? <laughs> and- um, but just because your baby is born healthy doesn't mean that it's not an excruciating experience in parenthood and I think motherhood in particular is starting to move towards understanding postpartum depression in a way that previous generations certainly did not Um, but I would be amazed at things that fathers could say about their infants that if you had a mother saying you would like call CBS right for me the the RA diagnosis and being <laughs> the thing that really annoyed me was when the weather got cold, how it would be instantly I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> yeah. And because I'm a hospice chaplain, half or more of my time is spent charting on the computer. And so for me, my RA resides primarily in my hands and feet. Oh, that makes typing really hard. When you have flares, it was extremely painful to type on the keyboard. Yeah. Um, And so I would do a lot of voice dictation, but everybody knows that's not a perfect. (laughs) No, 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 you you still have to go fix it. You definitely still have to go fix it. And so much of my charting is checking off boxes and here A or B or C. I hate charting. And so I can't dictate that, you know. And I was struck how comfortable I was sharing RA and that was having flares with my colleagues or my supervisor. And a lot of them had, oh, I have RA too, or my sister does, right? So it was so it was such a normalizing experience. Um, whereas I'm not like, hey, I have PTSD and I'm having a really tough day. Can I take a mental health day off? Which I have been able to do in recent years, but certainly not when I was first diagnosed because it was just so shame inducing to even admit Mm -hmm. that I remember when I hit the point in my career when when I got like a cold I would just cancel things for a few days instead of push through it and it in part because I remember the first time I did it I was like I don't want to deal with this for three weeks I'm going to cancel some stuff and see if it helps turns out it was wildly helpful (laughs) (laughs) When your body is sick, if you let it rest and heal, that's good. 
Um, but because that's not something that's well exampled in the church and not really talked about well, it was really hard to, and I, I mean, I'm a parish priest. I can usually cancel things that aren't crises if I have to. I don't try to, but like I have a lot more control over my schedule than someone in an office. Like, it's not like I had to go to a boss and say, hey, so I'm not sick for three weeks. Can I just have three light days instead? It was all my own, like, no, I have to do the thing. And how much harder that is when it is something we don't talk about, we don't respect. And nobody really gives you, like, here is a socially well-received way to not torture yourself. Right. And I have been fortunate to have other friends and colleagues who have shown by example what it means to take a mental health day. Um, I was thinking about um, a pastor I follow on social media, and she was saying she gives her kids like three days a school year where it's like free days whether it's a mental health day or she's like yes I know they probably avoided taking a test or whatever some days but I just don't care right to know that they have that safety net built in and I thought that was brilliant I got that growing Um, up and I my you know my parents were very hardcore like you must be responsible you know like like get up do your thing suck it up push through like they were very intense like that but once we got to middle school and my mom saw the 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 stress and just how hard things were we were allowed i think there's like three marking periods or whatever we were like allowed like one per marking period or one per semester or something and and she was like good for you and and she i remember her be just saying um you know um 100 attendance wards are stupid (laughs) like i don't care they like, are. I don't care. I see how stressed you are. I see how, you know, and um, again, they were very much like the you twisted your ankle, playing soccer, walk it off kind of people. But, but for some reason that they've always believed that kids in school were overworked and should have mental health days. And I, I that's something I took with that's me brilliant. into the I'm rest of my life. But that. most people don't think it's a real thing like ha 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 i need a mental health day no no really sometimes you really do sometimes you, you really need, need time it. off for whatever you need time off for you know i didn't hear of that concept like so by the time i was in middle school or high school for a lot of that my dad was a single parent and just in part because largely my siblings and i were not troublemakers would say yes to a lot of things without asking many questions. Also, like, single parent, you don't always have time to, like, interrogate. Like, really, you're sick on the day you have a calculus test. <laughs> or whatever. Um, so we sort of got to do that, but it always felt like I was cheating the system. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until seminary that a professor said, sometimes you just need a mental health day. And I was like, that's the language I have needed. Okay. That's a long time for you to go without hearing that term. Yeah. 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 I mean, I didn't hear that until probably after undergrad. Mm -hmm. That's a funny thing about internalized ableism, though. I mean, you know, Robin, you were talking about getting to a point in your in your career where you felt like you could sort of call it and be like, you know, I I need to take today off or whatever. Um, I when you were saying that, I was thinking at what point in my career? when was the point in my career when I felt like I had to stop apologizing for asking for accommodations or stop mm. apologizing for exist, basically for existing. Right. And, for and it was existing. very yeah. recent, like really, yeah. really, I know when I have a pretty good sense of when it was, it was very recent, you know? And yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it is. You just, you, you wind up just feeling guilty or making, uh, you know, or find yourself mm-hmm. making apologies or, not taking the time or whatever because you're not allowed to be a person. Well, and it'll be, I'm interested in your response to this, Teresa, because I think, I mean, Stephanie and I are both in that like Anglican Episcopal tradition. Mm -hmm. 
we started ordaining women in your lifetime, just before my lifetime. Okay. Yeah. In the seventies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm an early eighties baby. So in my, yeah, in so, my life, in my lifetime. But like, yeah, but it is still not what I would necessarily call a default. And I am also aware, and we've talked about it other times, there's a lot of ableism in the ordination process. Mm-hmm. So I have some of that I internalized sort of on top of my like societally gifted internalized ableism as I'm going to have to prove to people that I can do this job. I have fewer mistakes than other people do in part because that is true, but also because the church worked really hard to reinforce that. You will show you no wiggle room, no weakness. Nope. Yep. If you mess this up, you've messed it up for everyone. Yeah. I definitely relate to that from a Protestant tradition also because I was raised in a fairly in a very conservative tradition that did not ordain women and I had to move to a different denomination yeah because then the pressure is about your gender and gender representation if you don't give an outstanding sermon that this is why we don't hire women to preach okay or for me it's also about you know race and ethnic ethnic identity like, yeah. why would we have, you know, a Korean American woman? You, you know, she was only s- just okay at this one thing, and so much of that, like you said, is pressure we place on ourselves. But it's not something we make up. No. It is because of the, the very real societal pressures we feel about having to be outstanding in our jobs. Well, I've, I remember, I don't remember the topic, but I remember having a conversation with a male colleague about the work they were doing and realizing part of the reason they got to do that work is my capital was spent on dealing with people's discomfort at my embodiment. Because they're like, we've never hired a woman before, but we're also kind of ashamed of that. So we aren't actually going to own that that's a problem. Uh, So they got to have all of these conversations about topics I cared about. And I'm like trying to get people to stop commenting on what my hair looks like. But I feel like I need to write down what you, that line that you said there, Robin, about like, about how, you know, they, you were using your capital on like very basic things. Because I, I feel like there's, there could be, um, at least I'm speaking for just for myself, but I feel like sometimes as a parish priest, I feel guilty for not being, and I, I mean, I was an activist for a long time, um, which is something I had the luxury of doing when I was doing other kinds of non-parish ministry, other kinds of work. But now I feel like I can't be that sort of, that kind of as radical as I was because the, the kinds of energy required in parish ministry just to, just to be, just to do it. I I can't, I don't have anything left. Just being here, being me. And I mean, my people are lovely. Please don't get me wrong. But just being here, being me and being the first, first me here is a lot already. We will link to your website and to your resource guide specifically Mm -hmm. are there any other resources you would like us to note um there are a couple uh coloring pages available on the beaming books website i'm very excited to um i was on a a team of three writers who wrote for the um meadow media and brethren presses uh story bible that's coming out next year and all the parents who have to edit their children's story bibles or skip pages i think they'll be very happy with this one because oh i'm actually really excited to hear about this i'm not excited i was painstakingly difficult and so did my other two authors to present stories that are appropriate so david's sexual assault of Bathsheba is not a ducky okay it's not him stealing a ducky god yeah yeah so we we had very experienced writers. Oh, I'm so excited about the Song of Songs passage, which 
Excellent. Um, so Jasmine Morrill, Jasmine Pittman Morrill uh, wrote that one. She's a she's an MFA in poetry, and she did the poetry section. And oh, it starts nice. out with, I am black and I am beautiful. And I was like, oh, yes. this is yes. That is in some yes, it is. It yes. totally is. Even though I am dark as, as, as night, you know, I still mm-hmm. am loved by my lover. But she took that in, in empowered language. And the illustration for it is this black woman with like naturally hair, natural curly hair, but the hair has all these beautiful flowers coming out. It's stunning. Oh, and I'm so excited. Awesome. Um, um, so it, will that be announced on your media or is there a, a specific site we should link to for that? Um, I haven't had any announcements because they haven't released any press. Yeah, it's coming it's... out next fall, but it'll be through Metal Media. Okay. Um, so their previous version was Shine Story, Shine On Story Bible, mm-hmm. which is a very lovely uh, story Bible as well. This is geared a little bit younger to first through sixth grade. Oh, and nice. my eldest will actually be just the right age for it when it comes out. And I'm so excited. Because- Are you hoping to write another book? <gasps> yes. I Yay. have just submitted a book on death and dying to my publisher and for children, a picture book. Largely oh, based- that's fantastic. I- yes, largely based on my daughter's experience watching her grandfather die on hospice Mm -hmm. and my experience as a hospice chaplain for the past three years so this is a very needed resource yes Yes. there are very very there are a lot of books on loss and grief or some books on loss and grief for children that are well done but very few actually explain straightforwardly what death is because adults are terrified of it right Mm-hmm. And so, you know, mine says when death is when your heart stops beating, you stop breathing, you can't eat or talk or move anymore. Just very basic things because that's what kids want to know. Yeah. They don't want to know some metaphorical pie in the sky stuff. They were like, what does that mean? Also, this is one of my soapboxes, so we won't get into it because I, you do have to go. But I have never been in a group of children who are old enough to have any connection to the concept of death, mm-hmm. who don't, like I'll often, when it comes up and is appropriate, I'll ask, like, do you know someone who has died? Mm-hmm. And there's always, I mean, maybe it is a pet, but there is always some connection to death. Mm-hmm. And they need people who teach them that that is natural. Mm-hmm. And you can start with nature, yeah. right? The death of plants and the seasons and regeneration. And I think in the liturgical world, that lends itself very easily to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will link to your social media so people can learn about all of your upcoming work and the other wonderful things you're doing. All my social media and website's the same. It's tkpcreates.com. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at tkpcreates. So very straightforward. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time and for this lovely book that I adore. I was so glad to get to talk with y'all. Thank you for joining us for this conversation at the intersection of faith and disability. We encourage you to seek out local conversation partners to have conversations about faith and disability with. Robin? Tell me a couple of things about our conversation with Teresa that uh, really stood out for you or that you really um, appreciated. I think I say it like five times, but I'm going to say it again. I really love the disability representation in this book. And I'm so grateful for Teresa's work in making sure that appeared in it, that it shows disability as an aspect of creation that is normal and not the point is the point here. And I I really love that. And then the other part of our conversation that I really am thankful for, and it's just this short little bit, but where she talks about the internalized ableism and the ongoing struggle with that. And I know off mic, you and I have had conversations about how hard it is to dive deeper into that. So if there's someone out there who's like, Ooh, I have, I have that story. I would love to tell. Um, We would love to explore that with you. We don't have that story to tell yet. What about you? What are things that stand out for you, Stephanie? 
I learned a lot actually listening. One of the things I really liked that she talked about when she was talking about the artist's illustrations that go with all of the writing that she did for the book is the amount of detail in the representation um, and how there's all kinds of little details and things that can start conversations that result in people, whether they're children or adults, whoever is reading the book, understanding the world better and how everything fits together in God's creation. So I really like that. And I like how it is multifaceted and it's not just like, oh, this is about disability or this is about this or this mm. is about that, but it's about all the different facets of human life and how um, more than one thing is can be true about any one of us at once. Yes. It's, uh, you know, it creates three-dimensional people and scenes and stories. Um, so I love that. I love this book. I said in the uh, earlier in the podcast that I bought this for my niece, who's right in the um, age range that this book is aimed at, that I was thrilled to be able to buy a book that both supports um, her parents as far as their goals for her spiritual education, but also their goals for uh, progressive values. And this book does both. Just love that. Another thing that really stood out to me, it was just a little small thing, just a passing conversa thing in conversation, but it's a big deal. She talks about Doubting Thomas, we call him, which isn't my favorite word, name for him. One of the things she said about him is that his whole thing of wanting to see the wounds that Jesus had and put his hand in the the gaping hole in Jesus' side and everything opens a new way of seeing things. And I really like, um, I mean, we've talked about it before when we talked about the wounded Christ, the resurrected wounded Christ, but I like the way that she talked about it, that she said, you know, it's another, it's another way of seeing Jesus. It offers another um, opportunity to see Jesus in human life. So much here. And I'm, I'm so happy we get to talk about both the book Mother God and Teresa and her experience and her other work. Yes. I was very excited about this uh, new children's Bible that she talked about that's coming out. So there's, there's a lot more there. Again, this interview was really packed with a lot of like a lot of information. You have been listening to the accessible altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lene Lenape and Treaty 6 territory. If you like the Accessible Altar, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealtar.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar. And join us on our Facebook page at the Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, please email us at accessiblealtar at gmail.com. Thank you.